Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday session. Um, and sadly, this is the last one for June, but uh, we've been able to uh, convince Dr. Shriver to come back on July 16th, which is uh, middle of the summer to give an update to all of you on the, on the Friday. And then we'll back when we have to decide what to do in September moving forward. This is a very popular series. Um, and, and everyone's clamoring for John to come back. So we'll make sure that we that we keep bringing him back. A couple of great news. Uh, I heard the hospitalizations have dropped uh, in Connecticut. There are now 37 people, which is the lowest hospitalization rate since March 2020. Well, that's that's remarkable. Uh, the state Senate passed a bill legalizing recreational marijuana. The bill goes to the governor's desk. I think he's going to sign it. And then the the really, really important thing is the Supreme Court voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act, um, and, and this is important for our patients who have access to uh, to this very important uh, health care uh, support. We do have, before I turn it on over to John and, and Dr. Glinge, we, we have a, a recognition for John from, uh, from our two leaders uh, here. So if you want to come up and I'll put my mask on so that Dr. Alvin doesn't get upset. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So, Dr. Schreiber, I will be quick before you push me out of the way, because <laughs> I know you have a lot to get through. But we wanted to give you the good, the bad, the ugly. It's a sprint, not a marathon, Dr. Schreiber. To our movie buff and our local celebrity, <laughs> thank you for everything that you do. We'd be lost without you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I accept that on behalf of the entire community. So, thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. And Nicole has a long speech. I'm just kidding. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Very good. And with that, uh, John, thank you. All yours. Uh, thanks uh, very much. Um, the team here has been fantastic and um, has provided me the platform to assist you and the community all these all these months. I, I will say also it's Juneteenth today, and um, I, I, I guess I'll make the comment that uh, it's a great move forward. I think the or, the country is recognizing our origins, both wonderful and flawed. And uh, when we look that in the eye and we get our aspirational goals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone in the United States, it's a big move forward. So celebrate this day, um, recognize the soberness, but also, in my view, the excitement of trying to meet our aspirational goals as a country. So with that, let's get going. There's a lot to talk about today. And um, I want to, I want to, I don't have a um, advancer here. So uh, I can't, I can wave my hand and it will go forward. No. Sorry, but thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so um, a lot to talk about. Now, as Juan said, um, you know, we are in a good place in the United States. Actually, this has changed since I, I uh, did this just a couple of days ago. It's about 10,000 to 12,000 new cases a day in the United States. Uh, zero would be better, but this is a huge move forward and continuing to climb towards pre-pandemic levels in the country overall. Um, you'll notice also the hospitalizations across the country have really gone down in every age group. Those are all the various age groups, um, the elderly uh, leading the way down to children. And again, hospitalizations are way down across the country. Now that's not everywhere in the country. There's still some hospitalizations, but again, a big move forward. And in Connecticut, as Juan said, um, we are at a great point here. The decline in cases is moving us close to pre-pandemic levels in early March of 20. And um, 
a fantastic move forward. All of us longed for this day a year and a half ago. We thought it would be a few months. It turned out to be 18 months. And I did this just literally two days ago, and that's now declined to mid-30s numbers of patients hospitalized in Connecticut. So um, excellent move forward. We are in a good place. And there's down to zero to one to two COVID-related deaths per day in Connecticut, uh, moving towards zero. Um, amazing progress. So all good news today. And this is um, just a couple of days ago, 0.3% test positivity. This is Connecticut's um, community spread. Uh, we are at target for almost every town in the state. Quite remarkable. So community spread is to a point in Connecticut we dreamed it would be a year and a half ago. Now, this is not true across the whole country, but New England is doing very well. And if you look towards our immunization, we are moving towards 80% of the population in Connecticut overall getting at least one dose of vaccine. This is single dose uh, coverage, 90% um, for 65 and above. It's remarkable success and among the best in the world for immunizations, Connecticut and actually Vermont. Massachusetts is getting much better, is close to this. So New England in general, has done well and you it's reflected in the drop in cases, hospitalizations and deaths. In the United States, over 310 million doses have been administered. It's a success. And um, I think if you look at it, there are 145 million people have been fully vaccinated uh, and 52% of the total population has gotten one dose. But remember, the total population doesn't reflect who's allowed to be immunized. And if you go down to adults, for example, uh, and you can see percent 18 and above, 65% uh, of the country's gotten one dose and 54, 55% are fully immunized in adults. So we've made a lot of progress. Um, is it enough? Is it going to be enough? And I think that's gonna be the question as new variants sweep through, and I'm gonna show you some data on that. Now, unfortunately, numerous states are not where we are and have under immunized populations. If you look at Idaho, Wyoming, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, they're all in the 30s and in fully immunized in the 20s um, in Mississippi. So uh, this is an unprotected population. Even if 25% of them had disease, it's still below thresholds for herd immunity and it's a problem and they are vulnerable uh, to resurgence. This is Alabama, for example, immunizations. And you can see with the exception of Birmingham and Huntsville, maybe one other, most of the counties, uh, townships in Alabama are under immunized and um, it's a problem. And it's now being reflected in cases in Alabama. There's a 35% increase in cases in Alabama over the last week. Now it's not a lot of cases yet, 221, but it's increasing. This exact opposite of what happened in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, the exact opposite of what's happening. So you under immunize, there's some case increases. We have to watch this very closely and deaths have increased in Alabama as well. Still a very small number, but going the complete opposite direction of what we need to do. Now, if worldwide, um, things are getting a little bit better uh, in areas that were hard hit. The EU is in a better place. Um, England, I'm going to talk about, but South America continues to be very hard hit. And in my mind, the United States, with a strong traditional um, connection 
to the rest of the hemisphere needs to intervene and get vaccines down there and do whatever we need to do to immunize the populations in South America. That's near us, it's relevant to us, and it's an area where we should be intervening. I, I'm hoping the Biden administration has particular focus to trying to get immunizations into South America. We have a new vaccine coming, a Novavax, um, and the, going through the data is really important uh, as we talk to our parents and families and providers. Uh, Novavax intends to file with the FDA in the third quarter of this year. I can't tell you one. These are the data so far. Unfortunately, presented as a press release, not peer review, but it's what we got. So they had almost 30,000 participants, 18 years and above, in the U.S. and Mexico, was placebo controlled, blinded. They got 100% protection against moderate and severe disease and 90% efficacy overall against infection. Uh, there's the cases, uh, 77 COVID cases in the placebo, uh, in um, uh, total, 63 in the placebo and 14 in the vaccine group. And so very, very good efficacy in the 90% range. Side effects were similar and probably a bit less than the mRNA vaccines, but I haven't seen the data. so. Pain at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle aches, lasting less than 48 hours. So um, now the good thing about this vaccine, I'm going to run through it again. I've done, did this about a year ago or six months ago. This is a conventional antigen-based vaccine. So here's the coronavirus. They clone the spike protein gene. That gene is then put into a virus that infects insect cells. This is a moth cell, that green cell you infect it with a baculovirus that has the gene for spike protein. The moth cell cranks out thousands and millions of spike protein molecules in trimeric form. It assembles trimers, very good. And then they purify the spike protein from the insect cells and you've got pure antigen vaccine. There's an adjuvant mixed in. So that vaccine I think um, actually will be very important as we move to trying to immunize children where it's a more conventional vaccine made exactly the same, similar to the way hepatitis B vaccine is made and others, where there's a long track record of giving antigen-based vaccines to infants. So uh, I think this vaccine is very promising and look forward to more data and FDA licensure coming this fall. Now, long-haul COVID, this is a really interesting study. It's a white paper by Fair Health, which is a nonprofit that followed health insurance claims. It was Medicare and, and Medicare supplemental and did not include Medicaid. We just need to be aware of that. Um, and what they found following health insurance claims in COVID positive patients, that um, about 5% ended up having some sort of long haul symptoms, 30 days or more, pain, breathing difficulties. And now we're also seeing disturbances in cardiovascular and whether this is going to bear out or not, but hyperlipidemia in those patients popped up and they hadn't had it in the past. Malaise fatigue and hypertension, new onset hypertension. So we're going to need to watch patients who've had COVID, determine whether the cardiovascular and vasculature has been damaged by the uh, virus attacking the ACE2 receptor. So um, very interesting data looking at insurance claims. It was not controlled. They didn't look at a similar group. Um, and so I think we just have to take this with a little bit of grain of salt. It's very interesting data. What's going on in the UK, very relevant to us. So they're heavily immunized in the UK now, but remember 
a lot of the immunizations in the UK are AstraZeneca. Um, they're moving to Pfizer, um, and AstraZeneca is no longer being used, but many of the individuals were immunized with AstraZeneca. And there's a variant, the uh, variant uh, from India is all over the UK now, and there's some data that's very important for us to look at because it may be relevant to what's going to happen here. Now, the Delta variant uh, originated in India. It's now called B16172, um, and uh, that variant has multiple mutations and appears to spread faster than other variants. It binds better to the ACE2 receptor. There's a 60% increase in risk of household transmission compared to B117, which is the old UK strain that's in the United States. It's the most dominant strain in the United States. So it's more uh, ability to spread in households than the dominant strain in the US. Early data showed an increased risk of hospitalization. So for example, in the UK last week, they saw 200 new infections that ended up in emergency rooms that were from this new variant and 43 of those individuals were hospitalized. So they're watching this very carefully um, in the UK. And you can see there's actually a resurgence. If you look at that blue arrow, those are new cases occurring in the UK and a heavily immunized population showing that the cases have increased. Now, what they've done is they've delayed reopening by one month uh, in the United Kingdom. It's quite controversial. Uh, but the government is extremely worried that this variant is causing a new surge um, in the UK. Now, um, it's interesting. I'll talk about this variant. Uh, this is the structure of it. You'll notice that's the green trimer spike protein you're seeing in the right. But the point is it's got that 484 mutation that all the other variants seem to have. But it's got three new mutations as well. And these mutations... Um, are providing partial resistance to vaccine-elicited immunity as well as the monoclonal antibodies. And what I'll show you, it's very interesting. Um, there's reduced neutralization of this virus variant by post-immunization sera from the RNA vaccines, but there's still protection. And after two doses in the field in the UK, 88% of the people are protected against this variant. So two doses of the mRNA vaccines work, but you can see there's a reduction um, in neutralizing titer. I'm trying to get my arrow to work, but it doesn't work. So the um, yellow uh, is are the mRNA vaccines, and you'll see there's a reduction. That's the IC50 dilution that's neutralizing the antibody. It's decreased, but it's still quite good. So we know it's not going to be as protective, uh, but it's still protecting, and the data show are quite good. So um, if you, the UK data showed 1,000 people got two doses of Pfizer, 88% protective against the Delta variant. The AstraZeneca vaccine is only 60% effective, and that's probably the issue in the UK, uh, that a lot of people got that vaccine. It's not particularly good against this variant. However, one dose of the mRNA vaccines, only 33% effective. So you can look at the American data for immunizations. And by the way, the Delta variant is now 10% of all sequence cases in the U.S. It's gone from 1% to 10% in about three weeks. So this will become the dominant strain here. We have lots of people who have only gotten one dose of vaccine, and we have lots of people who are unimmunized in certain states. So we don't know what's going to happen, but we, we worry that the Delta variant will provide a surge scenario in states where they're under-immunized people. 
And if you look at the majority of the UK individuals who are immunized, the vast majority who, I'm sorry, were hospitalized from the variant, they're all unimmunized or they got AstraZeneca. So we're gonna need to watch this closely. It's a road bump. It's not gonna derail the train, but it's a road bump. The answer is you can see 88% effective is to get people to get their two doses of the mRNA vaccine and we will be in good shape. Let's talk about myocarditis. Um, this is a paper that came out of Israel this week. No different than what we know, but there were seven young males immunized with the Pfizer, uh, with the, uh, Pfizer mRNA vaccine. And within a few days after the second dose, they developed mild myocarditis. There's seven uh, males. They talk about this. And, and I think um, uh, we believe that there is a bump from the background myocarditis after the second dose in adolescent males. It's mild, uh, they've recovered. You look at all these kids, they recovered uh, within a few days and were discharged from the hospital. I believe it will be critical for us as healthcare professionals, nurses, families to discuss this transparently, talk about the risk benefit of the vaccines in this age group <clears throat> with parents who are thinking about immunizing their adolescent having a very honest discussion about it. In my mind, the risk of native infection with Missy and, and the issue of whether these individuals might have gotten even worse disease had they had native infection instead of immunization um, and all the things that we know can happen. This is so rare. To me, the risk benefit falls on the benefit side and getting, getting your kids immunized. But we need to have this transparent discussion. It's very important. And I'm gonna tell you why I think it's so important later on in the talk. In fact, now. So um, later on, I thought I had a couple of slides, but it's going to be now. So, so um, one of my worries <clears throat> since the beginning of this has been, uh, since nothing is off limits anymore for political weaponization, are we going to allow this no mask and I ain't getting immunized and all this to spread to our other pediatric vaccines? And the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Uh, this is a bill on the, uh, that's being considered by the Ohio State Legislature. They had testimony last week. This bill, <clears throat> 248, prevents mandatory vaccinations of all kinds in Ohio and prohibits public disclosure of anyone being vaccinated. So if you were in a school and parents chose not to immunize, you wouldn't know. The, the school system would know. All mandatory school uh, immunizations would be done away with. And I think um, we need to reflect on this very seriously. Um, this is not the right thing to do. We need to separate out our pediatric vaccines. We have decades, decades of experience of safety, efficacy, and prevention of disease in this country. Our children live to adulthood because of these vaccines. So we cannot let this spread, but it's going to involve careful careful and non-judgmental education that the pediatric vaccines, Haemophilus influenza B, pneumococcus, diphtheria, are safe and effective in infants and children. We have decades of experience and they are substantially uh, the cause of the health of the children in the United States. We do not wanna move backwards. Now, I believe a year and a half ago when I first started, <coughs> I shared some of this with you, but I'm gonna go through it again. This is a cemetery about a mile from my house. I'll be buried there. My family's buried there. This cemetery dates to 1755. It's unique in that it's, it's still in continuous use. 
So it, it just gets, lets you know how small the town is. Um, it's continuous use. Now, as you walk through the cemetery, it's really a history of public health in the United States because the early stones are predominantly children. And I'm going to walk through one family uh, here. This is, a, this is a series of stones in a, in a row. There are lots of them like this. Um, this is an amateur stone probably carved by the father. Patience, the daughter to Hezekiel Cook, died August 16th, and I, that's age 2, 1773, August 16th, summer. So, you know, it could be diphtheria. It could have been meningitis. It could have been measles. We don't know. But right next to that stone is in memory of Benjamin. By the way, the father's getting better at carving these stones. Um, he's got practice. Benjamin died two days later, August 18, 1773 at age 10. So something's sweeping through this household. Uh, and they lost the next kid who held out till April. That's uh, Eunice, uh, who was a teenager and died in April 1774. If you go through this cemetery, there are lots of families like this. And you realize in 1773 in Massachusetts, you had eight or nine children and you expected most of them to die. And one or two of them reached adulthood. In 2021, our parents expect all their children to live to adulthood. And immunization is the greatest public health success in history to prevent pediatric deaths. That's just factual. And you can go through every one of the diseases, whether it's whooping cough or diphtheria or meningitis from H. flu B, which by the way, here's a great story for you. Last week I was on the clinical service and I was like the tin man, I was a little rusty and, and Juan gave me some oil to get me moving. And I saw a case of, of an 11 month old with bright purple buccal cellulitis, okay? So I knew that was Haemophilus influenza type B. We switched the antibiotics and we worked up the kid. The kid got better and the new antibiotic that covered H. flu B and that's what it was. And none of our residents had ever seen a case because the H. flu B vaccine wiped it out. But when I was a resident, we admitted two or three of those kids a week. They had meningitis, they were sick. It was the, the, the highest cause of acquired a mental disability and, and cognitive problems of children in the United States, all gone from immunization. So our parents, many of them have never seen these diseases. It will be critical for us to separate out the pandemic from the safe, effective vaccines that we know work in children so we don't have epidemics moving forward. These bills are in several states. Nothing is off limits to be weaponized now and it will be our, our obligation to lead our families to understand the crucial nature of this. And I, I actually showed these stones when I lit, we were in Ohio for many years at Case Western, Rainbow Babies and Children's, the same flurry. And if you want to put kids in the ground, you pass a bill like that where you, you have optional immunization for everything and nobody knows. And we will have kids put in the ground. So <clears throat> I think it's very important. I didn't want to end on that note. Today um, in Connecticut, in New England and the United States, COVID infections and deaths are declining. We are in a good place. It's exciting. The USA has immunized 64% of the adult population and a huge success. Okay, we could do better, but it's pretty darn good. We have work to do. Connecticut immunizations among the best in the world and you can see that reflected in our community spread is dropping down and it might even get to zero. Um, the southeastern part of the United States, however, and parts of the West are significantly under immunized and with the Delta variant in the country, we are placing ourselves at risk to have infections in those areas. Vaccine choice, this is the bad, this is the ugly. 
Vaccine choice, which was really off limits, uh, mostly politically, appears to be a new political weapon and anti-compulsory pediatric vaccination bills are percolating in several states. And finally, the Delta variant is widely spread in the UK, has delayed reopening there. The variant is spreading rapidly in the US. We know what we can do to prevent it. Two doses of the vaccines, 88% efficacy. We have the tools, we have the answer. It's a road bump. And I look forward to all of us continuing to push our efforts to immunize in the coming months so that the Delta variant doesn't become a problem in the United States. I won't see you for a few weeks. Again, thank you so much uh, for all your attention, support, and being part of this wonderful community in Connecticut over the, over the past months. We'll see you in a few weeks. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, although we'll see you in a few minutes for questions, so you're not going too far. Uh, and uh, next, we're going to have uh, Dr. Janine Kalinj, who's going to talk about the perspective and increase in screen time. And uh, Janine is a uh, was trained at UMD and J. Robert Wood Johnson for medical school. Did her uh, uh, chief uh, her residency at the Washington Hospital Center, where she was also a chief resident and a fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology at Indiana University School of Medicine. And she has been with us for for a few years, doing some tremendous work. So I'm going to pass it on to her to share her wisdom. Uh, Janine. Great, thank you, Dr. Salazar. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Excellent, so I'm gonna share my screen. Uh, oh, let's see. Pardon me. Okay. So, here we go. All right, and all right. Um, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Um, uh, as Dr. Salazar mentioned, uh, my name is Janine Collins. I'm a pediatric ophthalmologist here at Connecticut Children's. And uh, thank you for inviting me to speak about uh, screen time uh, during the pandemic. Hopefully I'll have uh, a few bits of uh, wisdom to share with you and maybe some helpful tips uh, for how to take care of yourselves, your families, and your patients. So I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, and um, uh, Dr. Salazar gave an excellent introduction. Um, I, I have been um, uh, working in pediatric ophthalmology for about um, eight years um, and have a, a variety of experience um, that I've brought here to Connecticut Children's to help expand our patient access to care for things like cataracts and glaucoma and retinopathy of prematurity, um, in addition to uh, managing the more bread and butter stuff like amblyopia and strabismus. Um, but today, I'd like to talk to you about screen time. Um, these are my objectives for the discussion. Um, I have a brief case just to illustrate um, what we've all been dealing with uh, for uh, screen time concerns uh, related to patients and parents over the past year or so, um, some statistics on screen time, and then just a discussion of the evidence of how screen time may or may not be affecting um, vision and visual health, along with some practical recommendations. So this is a case that I see not too infrequently in my office, um, especially with the start of virtual learning. Uh, 
it, this could be anybody in your office as well, and sometimes happens multiple times a day, multiple times a week, uh, we'll get a, a young girl or a young boy who comes in with kind of vague complaints, intermittent blurry vision, occasional double vision, hard to quantitate how much it's there, what makes it better or worse, if it's better at distance or near. Uh, they might say that things are a little bit irritated for their eyes, uh, but they're otherwise healthy uh, and have no significant ocular or family ocular history. Uh, and you would elicit from them that they, like everybody else that they know, has been doing a lot of virtual learning. Uh, and uh, the parents are um, appropriately concerned about this impact on their symptoms. Uh, so they're worried about what's going on with their child's eyes. Uh, they're worried about uh, things like headaches. Is the screen time causing this? Is the screen time causing permanent damage to the eyes? Are there any things that we can do to help how the child is feeling? Um, any advice for screen time just in general for kids, because this is not something that's often covered for families. And uh, in my perspective, they don't often feel like they have uh, good information on what's an appropriate amount of screen time for their kids. And then of course, the wonderful discussion of these magical blue blocking glasses. Do they help? Do they not help? Are they worth it or not? So what we can tell them um, are some basics of what's been going on uh, with screen time in general um, over the past few decades. Um, in 2010, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study and found that kids are spending a significant amount of time on screens each day. Um, on average, it's about seven and a half hours per day on a screen with four and a half of those hours related to entertainment. And there's even slightly more, um, closer to nine hours a day for kids ages 11 to 14 years. And this can have a significant impact on them um, emotionally and physically. There are concerns with obesity and sleep disturbances along with um, uh, concerns for depression and anxiety as well. So the World Health Organization uh, uh, has uh, taken this on as a significant health concern for children and recommending that we get kids um, away from screen times quite so much, get them back to play uh, to help uh, impact these uh, potential uh, negative uh, disturbances to their growth and development related to excessive screen time. The AAP has um, uh, recommendations that it's published based on um, uh, guidelines that it thinks would be most appropriate uh, for children's growth and development in terms of screen time. Um, they have a statement regarding um, screen time for kids under age five and then recommendation for older kids as well. Um, and the, the gestalt of it is that they recommend you have a family media plan um, that's specific for your child, your child's needs, um, that's specific for the child's age as well. The recommendations are that kids under 18 months of age should really only be on screens if they're using it for video chatting to interact with family members. Um, kids 18 to 24 months can use screens um, as long as the uh, programming is high quality um, and the uh, interaction with the screen is done with the family and with the parents to make it more interactive. Um, there are recommendations to limit screen time for kids ages two to five years to one hour per day, and then for all kids to limit screen time um, to not being on the screen one hour before bedtime because that can negatively in impact the child's ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. Uh, and then for older kids, it really just depends on their needs. Uh, these are kids that are school-age kids. They may need screen time for um, a variety of different learning experiences and we don't want to adversely affect their growth and development from that standpoint. Um, so they've developed a, a media time calculator that you can use to help gauge 
what might be an appropriate amount of screen time uh, for any given child for their needs. Um, and I have the link that's um, on the slides here uh, and the AAP statement as well. So what's going on since the pandemic? Screen time didn't magically start since you know, the pandemic started. It was existing well before that, but there has been a significant rise in the amount of screen time that people in general are using. Um, there are reports that the usage of um, certain apps like TikTok and YouTube um, are up by anywhere from 50 to 80%, and that's con contributing to a significant increase in the amount of screen time. Um, certain reports have shown that the amount of screen time that anyone uses at any time during the pandemic has doubled overall. So how is the screen time affecting the eyes and how is it affecting vision? We have some limited data because there's only been a, a year of this. We've only had a year to kind of collect and analyze this data. So there will be more coming forth, but there are some early published studies that show that screen time can significantly affect your ocular surface. It can affect the uh, progression of nearsightedness. Um, and there is some brief uh, limited evidence on whether or not blue blocking glasses are helpful. And I'd like to go over that next. So myopia progression. Myopia um, is nearsightedness, so where you can see clearly close up, but everything far away is blurry when you don't have your glasses on. Um, and um, people in the pediatric ophthalmology world are well aware that uh, myopia is pretty much an epidemic for us. Um, there's an increasing rate of myopia um, across the world, um, and there's planned to be an estimated 5 billion people worldwide by 2050 who will be affected by myopia. And myopia can cause lots of problems within the eye. If it progresses and gets really, really high, it can cause uh, permanent vision loss um, and impact um, child's growth and development if it becomes severely large. Um, so this is a big concern for us um, in pediatric ophthalmology. Um, there has been significant research to try and understand what causes myopia. There are some genetic um, factors that are implicated because it can run in families, uh, but there are other environmental factors that we have found that affect the development of myopia as well. Um, there have been an association with greater amounts of near work of any kind, causing an increase in the risk of myopia. Um, and there's also been an association with a protective effect for spending time outdoors or looking at things farther away um, to reduce the risk of myopia. Um, there are limited studies currently available for how screen time affects myopia because myopia can take years to kind of show itself. Um, and the data is kind of variable. It says that there might be a link um, specific to screen time, although it's hard to parse that out because there's links specific to having an increased amount of near work, which is similar to screen time as well. Um, we're hopeful that over the next several months to years, we'll get more data to help understand how screen time might be affecting the growth and development of the eye. Now, there is definitely some um, early evidence as well to support how screen time can affect your ocular surface. And the feelings that many people feel in terms of digital eye strain, where they feel like their eyes are blurry or irritated, um, they're getting headaches, they just need to close their eyes for a few seconds and they might feel better. Most of this digital eye strain is actually coming from how screen time um, affects your ocular surface. And it's not just screen time, it's also these wonderful protective mandatory masks that we have that have been shown to affect the ocular surface as well. Um, there's been increases in reported um, 
symptoms of dry eye and use of artificial tears in, um, in a relatively younger age population where those uh, rates and usage of tears tends to be fairly low, um, up to 10 to 20%. Um, and you can see from the picture in the top right how the mask can affect the ability of um, the glasses to stay nice and clear so that can cause you to be blurry. But that mask also causes the air to kind of push up and around the eyes um, so that uh, it's thought that it causes a change um, in the microbiome around your eyes um, and how the bacteria that normally live there are affecting the ocular surface. Um, there are reports of increasing um, eyelid inflammation changes related to that change in the ocular surface biome uh, called um, the ocular uh, inflammation changes that we're seeing are blepharitis where you can get eyelid um, margin uh, inflammatory changes uh, right where the eyelids affect, um, impact the eyelashes. And there are oil glands there that pump out oily parts of the tears. Um, and when those are inflamed, it leads to the formation of chalazion or styes like you see in the bottom right. Now that's a pretty dramatic appearance of chalazion formation, um, but there is an, an early report out of UCLA showing that over the year from 2020 to 2019, there was a doubling of the rate of chalazion formation. Um, in their uh, presenting patient population. Uh, so that's pretty significant as well. And then last but not least, these blue blocking glasses um, that everybody comes in and asks questions about, do they work, do they not work? The short answer is not really. The longer answer is not really. Anecdotally, I have patients and parents who will tell me that they feel better and they think things are easier to see. And if that's the case, then uh, wonderful. They're not found to be harmful. Um, but there have been a small handful of um, studies showing that um, in a double blind fashion, if participants are using the blue blocking glasses, it does not seem to reduce their reported symptoms um, after a prolonged near work. And then if you do formal measurements of their accommodation, their ability to focus for a long time at close up, it also does not change whether or not the blue blocking glasses are in place. So what can we tell our patients and our parents and our families um, about screen time and things that we can do to help manage the increased need for screen time that we'll have uh, for the, the foreseeable future. Uh, what I tell my patient parents and families is to try and follow the AAP screen time guidelines and to set up a family media plan uh, and to try and create a system where it's going to be sustainable for kids to have more screen time over time. Um, I like this infographic on the bottom right from the American Academy of Ophthalmology because it gives a lot of information in a short little packed area. We like to tell families about the 20-20-20 rule, which is where every 20 minutes you spend 20 seconds looking at something 20 feet away, maybe out a window or stand up and walk around. Um, you might need to set a timer on your phone or mark pages if you're looking at a book. And then it's important to set yourself up for success um, if you create an environment where the lighting is good. Uh, you wanna make sure that the light is not coming from behind the computer screen. You're not sitting in the dark with the computer screen. Um, you get a, a large enough computer screen that you can, so it's better to use a laptop than it is to use a phone. Um, better to use a laptop than a tablet if you can. And then keeping an appropriate distance away, having the, the screen be about an arm's length distance away um, helps to relax the, the eye's need to focus over time. Um, Occasionally swapping out the screen for a real book might help to change the focus of the eyes. 
Um, and then of course, taking time to separate yourself from screen before bedtime so that it does not adversely affect your sleep. We also recommend because uh, the prolonged near work and screen time can affect the ocular surface that keeping up with regular eye surface hygiene um, is helpful to prevent symptoms um, or address symptoms if you're having them. So having warm compresses and artificial teardrops available if you're feeling itchy or scratchy or burny can be really helpful. Although the placement of tears into kids' eyes is sometimes a little bit dramatic and they might end up crying them out. So I honestly like the idea of doing forceful blinking and I'll tell my parents and families if they kind of blink like five or six times in a row, it'll start to pump the tears over the eye and lubricate the surface um, and can help improve uh, comfort and symptoms. So when to refer, um, just because we've seen increased in screen time and increased in maybe eye complaints that may be attributable to screen time doesn't mean that kids aren't still developing real eye and vision problems that need to be addressed. Um, so we can try these kind of conservative measures and suggestions for kids and families and see if they help. But if the child seems to have severe blurry vision or persistent symptoms despite appropriate use of conservative measures or new things like eye redness, pain or discharge, um, headaches with nausea and vomiting, if they're falling behind at school, sometimes this can be a sign of a real vision problem. Sometimes it can be a sign of a reading or learning or processing disorder that's really unrelated to vision um, or screen time usage. Um, and it's important that we address those for kids because those are still pretty active even during the pandemic. So that's all that I have to share for screen time. Thank you so much for your attention. Um, thank you for listening and I'm open for some questions. I also have um, references and resources if you need. And I'll stop my share. Thank you very much, Janine. I, um, I don't have my blue glasses today, but I think John does. So we'll, get, we'll ask that question in a minute. Uh, we have a number of questions, and uh, let me begin with uh, with Hugh Janine. The, uh, there's a question with Dr. Corcoran. Says, Blue light blocking glasses are meant to help avoid pineal disruption and melatonin secretion, thus avoiding delayed sleep onset. In that case, they can be helpful of use in the hour or two prior to bedtime. Any comments on that? I think that that's um, a, a reasonable um, and a, a maybe appropriate use of it. Um, we get a lot of families that come in uh, who have had the glasses marketed to them specifically that they will reduce their visual symptoms um, and their kind of um, digital eye strain. And I think if people you know, see a benefit for other things related to the blue blocking glasses, that's perfectly wonderful. And honestly, if you feel better wearing the blue blocking glasses, go right ahead. But it's assuming that they're going to relieve those visual symptoms, I think is um, not necessarily accurate. Another interesting question for you is, uh, since swapping for a real book is a protocol for practice screen time hygiene, is there any information about prolonged reading of a real book, uh, whether it has similar symptomatology or, or does the real prolonged reading not have the negative effects on the eyes? Um, you know, that uh, swapping the... Uh, uh, the screen time for the real book is a suggestion from the Academy. I don't know that they have um, evidence behind it. Um, if you're doing near work of any time, any kind, you're going to blink less often. And so it's gonna have a similar effect to your ocular surface. It's just gonna change the stimulus and the exposure of the eye to light. And so maybe if 
um, the change of that light stimulation from the screen is different, you might experience some improved symptoms. But I, to my knowledge, there's no evidence to support it. It's more just a suggestion. And it may more involve like changing your fixation, pausing, closing your eyes, the activities of um, changing your eye focus point that are involved with swapping out a book to the screen. Great. Thanks. We'll come back to you in a minute. Um, John, uh, as COVID continues to circulate in the community, is it reasonable to expect that the vaccinated population will have a natural boost to their immunity through continued exposures? It's a great question. Um, continued exposures. We don't know the answer to that. Um, there haven't been, as far as I know, a study surveying vaccinated individuals in a community where there's community spread and seeing if they boost. Um, it's a good study. That would be very difficult in New England right now because our community spread is so low, we're probably not being exposed. But it's an interesting idea as a study in communities where there's a lot of spread still, are people self-boosting with, with exposures? And I don't know the answer to that. It's an interesting question. John, if, if uh, one mRNA vaccine, Pfizer, is 88% effective against the Delta variant, can we assume Moderna is the same? Yes, I think uh, I would assume that they've been extremely aligned and similar in all of the protective efficacy um, experiments uh, that have been done. So I would assume they're, they're aligned and both of them with two doses would be highly protective against the Delta variant. From Dr. Zellneritis, how would a Delta variant surge in states with low vaccination rates? Uh, would that affect our travel policy to regard to those states by vaccinated employees and learners here? It's a great question. It hasn't happened yet, although you saw the Alabama data, they're increasing. Um, one of the challenges uh, I have, I went on the CDC website and their variant data is May 22nd is the latest update, not helpful. So um, I don't have a real time understanding of, are we seeing the variants in Alabama, for example, in that increase, that 35% increase they had, did we do uh, molecular testing on those isolates and determine are they Delta variant? The answer is I don't think so. So I think this will come out with over the coming weeks, we'll, we will find out in some of the states where there might be some increases due to under immunization. And if Delta variant is there, I believe that question will need to be addressed at that time, Ed. Right now, probably not. Another question, is there any antibody protection against the Delta variant for people who previously had COVID or a different variant? Great question. Um, I believe that those who've had the original variant, and in that slide I showed you, they took some sera from people who'd not been infected uh, with the Delta variant, and they had a big decrease in neutralizing antibody ability. So the answer is it may not protect you particularly well against the Delta variant if you've been previously infected with 117, for example. And I, I believe the vaccine may even be more effective than natural infection with a non-variant. So I think the answer is not well. The 2-H flu questions, which is interesting for this one. Um, uh, Ed asked if the patient was vaccinated against Hib. Great question. The patient apparently received two, va two immunizations with the Hib vaccine and not the third. So potentially still vulnerable. Remember in the old days, buccal cellulitis from H flu tended to happen in older kids in the 11, 12 month range who were partially immune and they would contain it. And it didn't often cause meningitis when you had buccal cellulitis, they would contain it. So this kid may have been very much in that, in that sphere of a partially immune child exposed and containing the H flu infection uh, to the buccal area. 
A question for one of our retired pediatricians, Dr. Walker. It says, thank you, Dr. Shriver, for your expertise, sharing your knowledge and wisdom. I graduated UConn Medical School in 1977. 1980, I joined Mansfield Family Practice with a large pediatric practice until I retired in 2018. I was trained that if you suspected meningitis, you did an LP urgently, ASAP, did not wait for results to cover with antibiotics, which were based on age and suspected organisms. There were no vaccines for haemophilus, pneumococcus, meningococcal. Times and standards have changed. Yes, we're blessed, but let's remember um, that I think that's threatened a little bit. We don't want to go backwards, and we don't want to go back to the 1700s in our in our the way we manage children. So, I, I, it's a great comment. We are blessed, and most of our parents and most of our physicians haven't seen many of these diseases. So the sense of urgency is low. Now, polio, there's still worldwide polio. What if we stopped immunizing against polio in this country? Yeah, we'll get a case. And I mean, we don't have iron lungs anymore, but you really want children to be paralyzed. So I think it's going to be very important for us to stay the course and, and put aside honest and transparent discussions about this pandemic and preventing further spread and the vaccines we have available, which are wonderful gifts, but not perfect. And the vaccines we have prevent other pediatric infections that are decades of experience, are highly effective and safe, and we need to be able to have those discussions honestly with people. So it's a great comment, and it's wonderful how the residents hadn't seen it, Kate. I mean, it's a wonderful gift. They haven't seen Haemophilus influenza type B. Uh, Janine, two questions for you, uh, one from Dr. Ramirez. Does a lower, light, uh, a lower level of light on the screen help? If so, how much of a reduction? Are there any guidelines? Um, so I don't know that there's um, recommendations on reducing the, the light on the screen um, because there is uh, appropriate uh, recommendations for having a good level of contrast. So you want to be able to see what you're looking at because if you reduce the light, you might reduce the contrast level as well. We don't have guidance on that. Um, there's not uh, been good studies to show if you kind of reduce the light, does that change your visual symptoms? Um, yes or no. Um, so I would say, honestly, a lot of it's subjective, making sure that you have the right um, amount of contrast and trying to keep your light exposure kind of in the middle are the best recommendations that we have. Another interesting question, are, are all screens created equal? For example, do e-readers have the same impact on pineal gland stimulation or other visual symptoms? Uh, so I don't know about the pineal gland uh, stimulation uh, from e-readers versus um, like laptops versus phones. Um, from a vision standpoint, um, honestly, like a screen is a screen is a screen. Um, the, the thought to having the larger screen size is to try and make it easier so your eye doesn't have to focus quite so hard. Um, we don't have studies that specifically address like if you used the phone versus like a tablet versus a laptop versus like a large screen TV, how do your symptoms differ um, in terms of eye strain? Um, a lot of the symptoms that we get again, are from like ocular surface changes because you're staring at something for a long time and you tend to blink less often. So I suspect that there might not be a huge difference related to the dryness and irritation. Maybe the fatigue that you would get for focusing for a long period of time um, is less with a, a larger screen. But again, these are all um, suggestions. We don't have um, enough evidence-based um, medicine to support a specific guidelines. And uh, we're all just trying to give the best guidelines we can um, for any given situation. This question for you, and then we'll go back to John, is um, the, from Dr. Scherzer. This is an interesting, interesting and I, idea that normal eye flora can be affected by mask and perhaps other factors. I have seen a lot more styes this year. We sometimes use probiotics for gut health. Are there any 
PR antibiotics being studied? <laughs> oh, that would be interesting. Um, so um, there are, I think, some early studies looking, they've not been uh, thoroughly evaluated and published uh, at probiotics effect on the ocular surface biome. Um, I, I do agree we're seeing a ton of styes and um, other ocular surface disease in kids much more since the pandemic, and there's got to be some sort of impact from the mask wearing. Um, we don't like to use like chronic low doses of antibiotics if we can avoid it, uh, because we need those antibiotics for when kids get really bad eye infections. Um, but that would be interesting to have more data on if probiotics help improve um, the ocular surface biome. Um, we don't have enough data on that uh, to make Very one. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, John, two uh, antibiotic, uh, antibody re, uh, longevity questions. Is the longevity of natural immunity known? There's been the usual 90-day natural immunity reported, but do we have any better research information on those infected? Uh, the data for naturally immune 90 days was sort of the original CDC cutoff. But there, if you look, individuals have neutralizing antibody in memory probably for several months after that, but it wanes. And so, again, the potential of having waning neutralizing antibody and being exposed to a variant that already has reduced the ability of neutralizing antibody to, to work uh, set up the stage to have some reinfections. So, uh, so that's sort of what we know now. So I think it's immunity natural infection probably lasts longer than 90 days. But, you know, you look at respiratory viruses in general, coronaviruses, immunity is not lifelong. And ditto with influenza, other respiratory viruses. So we know that the immunity will wane over time. And, and I'm looking to sort of the 12-month mark as typical of waning immunity for other respiratory viruses after a natural infection. John, if you had a family member fully vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, would you recommend they receive the mRNA vaccine? Uh, to suggest that, I think um, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, certainly when boosting occurs, whatever time the CDC um, suggests that we move to a booster dose next year, perhaps late this year, I probably wouldn't reuse the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's being abandoned in most of the EU now and most of the, the rest of the world. It's just its protection doesn't appear to be as effective against a lot of these variants. So I don't think I would re-immunize with mRNA vaccine. I don't have any data to suggest that, but certainly when booster time comes, uh, I would want uh, to make sure that we would move to a more effective vaccine at that time. Let me open similarly. A patient lives in Dubai, received the Chinese vaccine, had COVID. Should she get Pfizer now? Husband, no COVID, but had Chinese vaccine. Should she get Pfizer? No data. It's a great question. And we don't, we haven't seen data from that vaccine that's randomized and placebo controlled. And we don't know the answer to that. Could be a great vaccine. There could be faster waiting immunity, or, or I just don't know. I do know that um, coming into the United States, it's possible that those vaccines may not be acceptable. For example, if you came from another country and you're gonna work in a healthcare system that's mandating immunization looking ahead, it may be that um, the mRNA vaccines would be required at that time. I don't know the answer to that. Great question and one we're gonna to have to grapple with. Uh, but be aware, a lot of the rest of the world now, the EU and others and England, are moving to the Pfizer and other mRNA vaccines, and then we have Novavax coming as well. So I think we're gonna have multiple effective platforms with good randomized placebo control data. I don't, I haven't seen those data from Sinovac. I, I just don't know. And another question, I have a 12 year old um, who's very healthy. I'm worried about myocarditis. 
Would you recommend vaccination of that 12 year old? So uh, I think this is the $64 million question. And, and I do the same thing I did, I think, when the vaccines first came out. What's the risk benefit in my mind for my family? So I look on the risk is a very small number of mostly male adolescents are getting transient myocarditis several days after the second dose, probably vaccine related, not 100% sure yet. So that's the risk. And, and as I saw from the Israeli data I just presented to you, all of those kids got better in a few days and went home. And then you have the risk of, you know, adolescent getting sick and maybe if they were genetically predisposed to get more inflammation from the vaccine, they're even worse with natural infection. You've got MISI, you've got a multi-organ disease. And then I showed you the long hauler issue. Am I setting up my adolescent to get hypertension? at age 30. I don't know the answer to that. I think there is risk to natural infection that is still evolving and appears to be very significant. So in my mind, the risk benefit falls to giving the immunization. But that thought process needs to occur in every family, every mother, every father. They are the advocate for their children. And my job will be to show the facts and my thought process and help them through what their decision is on that. Bruce Cohen comes in, and I don't know the data here yet, and uh, apparently the UK has decided the risk of vaccine does not warrant adolescents getting vaccinated, even in concern with Delta variant. Are we worried that people in the US will see that and decide not to vaccinate their kids? You know, I haven't, I haven't seen that UK decision, just reviewed their government website, so it must be new. Um, yes, I think it will factor into our discussion with our parents and families, absolutely. But I, I, I haven't seen it in July when we come back. We'll be more discussion about this, and hopefully we'll have more data about it. Dr. Bagley, uh, we're, um, Amanda Bagley, uh, we're starting to see surges across the country in RSV now that many people are going back to their normal life. It seems like adults and older MS children are probably the main conduit to spread the young infants. Could we use this new knowledge and mRNA vaccine technology to vaccinate adults and older children and therefore prevent spread, spread to younger, uh, smaller infants? Great question. So yes, RSV is out there in June. It's a little strange. And to me, it's kind of refreshing. I think it shows that we're getting moving back to more normal contact. Now that's it. I just saw this. I had a slide, but it was too many. If you look at all RSV tests in the United States right now, last week, 20% were positive. So there is an RSV outbreak. It's much less in our region. Uh, I don't remember the number in Connecticut. There's still a positivity rate. It's pretty low. Um, so RSV is back. The application of mRNA technology to other difficult respiratory viruses is absolutely a potential. And there are companies and research labs already looking at that. So I think it's, it's an incredible opportunity. The vaccines um, are tremendously immunogenic and work. And could this work for RSV? Could you isolate an area, a little piece of the RSV virus that was very protective and make an mRNA vaccine, ditto with some of the other respiratory pathogens, paraflu, uh, others. The answer is, I think the technology's there and there's active research looking into it. So, great question. Great, it's uh, it's nine o'clock. We gotta get you all back to, uh, to your office and work. Uh, it, I wanna thank everyone for their participation over the last uh, several months for the Friday session. Uh, John, thank you very much for uh, what you have done. Uh, 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 Janine, thank you again for uh, you know just great information about uh, screen time. I think I'm just going to go to sleep at 7 p.m. now and forget the computer. Maybe that's the way to go. Sounds good.
<laughs> glasses are going to go away, so that that's great. Uh, just a reminder: on Tuesday, we have a terrific grand rounds. Dr. Michelle Cloutier will be presenting the uh, the revised new guidelines for asthma therapy. Uh, she uh, actually was the senior author of the guidelines at the NHLBI at the NIH. So please join Dr. Cloutier on on Tuesday grand rounds. Uh, and then um, uh, we'll come back with John later back in, in July. We'll bring him back with lots of new information. I'm sure there'll be... Uh, July 16th. And, and then the last thing, if uh, at 10 o'clock today, we have uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, who is the Assistant Health Human Services Secretary, who will be hosting uh, a very specific sessions for us here at Connecticut Children's. There's a login that we have put in the chat. Uh, please register. It promises to be a really good presentation from Dr. Levine. We're really privileged to have her at 10 o'clock. Other than that, be safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.